The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter. It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture. Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief. You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Lizzie Burden. And I'm Stephen Carroll in Ireland at the Bloomberg New Economy Gateway Europe event. Hello to you all. How are things back in the studio? Do you miss we me? We miss you. We miss you, Stephen. <laughs> I actually had a both to say that. <laughs> jam-packed couple of days over there. Who have you been talking to and what stood out to you? That sounded a bit Silla Black, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm Stephen. I'm from Dublin. We're not in Dublin. This is a point of contention. Uh, let's t- talk about... The, I mean, look, this is, a, this is an event that's focusing on the challenges facing Europe as a continent. So it is including the UK, but not limited to the UK. And I think what stood out for me is the fact that the challenges and the themes being discussed here are things that we're talking about all of the time on this show, about the challenges facing the UK economy, for example, things like inflation, cost of living, the energy crisis, and how exactly that is going to play into domestic politics. It's the same thing that people are talking about elsewhere in Europe as well. One conversation that stood out to me that I think is going to be very interesting to watch is to do with data protection. We spoke to Ireland's Data Protection Commissioner, who's the lead point person on enforcing the EU's data rules. They have lots of challenges with the big dealing with the big tech companies. Now that the UK, of course, is out of the EU, it's going to have to deal with some of those issues by itself. We know there are changes to come uh, in data rules. It's something we've talked about in the show before. That, I think, could be one issue to watch that I've taken away from this event. We'll get more from Stephen in Ireland a little bit later on in the show. Here in London, government ethics very much back in focus today. The Prime Minister seeking to defuse a row over whether relevant interests have been logged appropriately. Anyway, Rishi Sunak has declared in a footnote to the latest list of ministers' interests that among a, quote, number of direct shareholdings owned by his wife, Akshata Murthy, is a, quote, minority shareholding in a company that stands to benefit from government plans to overhaul childcare. So there you have it. It is on the record. Now, last week, remember, the UK Parliamentary Commissioner for Standards, Daniel Greenberg, opened an investigation into whether the Prime Minister had failed to declare a relevant interest. I think, let's be honest, none of this is is really a threat to Sunak's position, but it is, I think, a bit embarrassing because it draws attention again to his family's wealth and shareholdings that that had been not put on the record, that have been forgotten. A lot of people don't have lots of shareholdings that they can uh, forget about. And of course, it's not great optics uh, when you've promised to lead a government with, quote, integrity, professionalism and accountability at every level. Of course, it's not just the Prime Minister himself who's thrown into question the government's goal of being squeaky clean. It's also his deputy, Dominic Raab. And a report on whether he bullied staff is expected in the coming days. So this report being led um, by an independent lawyer called Adam Tolley is going to land on Sunak's desk as soon as today. 
um, eight um, formal complaints have been lodged against Dominic Karab, accusing him of um, alleged mistreatment of staff, of bullying, of belittling. Um, the Guardian has reported that 24 civil servants have submitted evidence as part of that report across three different departments in some very senior roles as well. Um, so Sunak um, has a massive decision on his hand. Now, the report landing on his desk doesn't necessarily mean that it will be published straight away. That's in Sunak's hands. And he will have to make a decision based on the facts in that report on what he decides to do in terms of repercussions against his closest political ally. And Ellen, you've also written about allegations against a former cabinet minister, Al- Alok Sharma. Yeah, so this is a story we wrote just this last weekend. Um, the Raab um, allegations, which have been going on for about five months now, has opened up a conversation about the way um, cabinet ministers um, treat or have treated civil servants. Um, we also saw um, Gavin Williamson leave cabinet because of bullying allegations actually um, against one of his own um, M- MPs in the Conservative Party, Wendy Morton. Um, so there's a conversation been happening and this report um, about allegations against Alok Sharma, I spoke to four senior people for this story, um, show that maybe there is a wider cultural problem and that it's not just limited to one person. Ellen, do you think this stuff cuts through? Do you think people uh, are actually following this outside of the, the Westminster bubble? I think with Dominic Raab, it really cuts through because he is the deputy prime minister. He is the person that Rishi Sunak leans on probably the most within Cabinet. Um, He was the most loyal to him, the most supportive of him um, during the leadership campaign over the summer as well, for example. And so the, the choice Rishi Sunak has to make is, based on what's the findings in the report, either to hold his... Hold Dominic Raab um, to account, take action, sanction him, maybe by firing him, maybe by pushing him to resign. Or um, the flip side of that is losing a really close political ally who he leans on heavily and who carries carries through um, Prime Minister's questions when Rishi Sunak isn't, isn't around and, and, and other things like that just a year out from the election. So it's a, it's a big decision he's weighing. And um, because of the seniority of Dominic Raab, I really think this cuts through. Ellen, more broadly, there's always been tension between ministers and their civil servants. Is this very unusual or do we actually know? Is it a question that people are feel more able to report incidents now than they have in the past? It's not unusual to have robust challenges and disagreements between civil servants, especially the senior ones and ministers. Um, That is something that civil servants are used to, that's something they know entering the civil service. But I think there's a difference between um, being challenged or having disagreements and then getting to the point where it's deemed to be um, excessive, maybe aggressive. Um, and um, unprofessional and not within within the standards that a minister should keep. I do think that the, the Brexit referendum in 2016 and, and that caused some distrust between civil servants and maybe the ministers when, that, when there were increasing disagreements about that. But I also think the, the bashing that goes on of, of the civil service among some in the Conservative Party and some political commentators, you know, the, 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 using colourful language like snowflakes and 
woke civil service you saw that a lot with Liz Truss over the summer leadership campaign and in her brief stint as Prime Minister that that really can cause some real low morale among people who are working for the government. Ellen, I gotta wonder how many allegations like this need to come forward between the culture before the culture in Westminster actually changes. When you're in the corridors of Parliament, do you detect hope that the tide is actually turning, that this stuff is no longer gonna be acceptable? I think Rishi Sunak's decision about Dominic Raab will really determine that. There, under Boris Johnson, there was a perception of his government that um, there was a lack of accountability for mistreatment of people by certain ministers um, it, for the sake of loyalty. You saw that with Owen Patterson, um, who, um, I mean, that was less mistreatment of staff, more um, the kind of lobbying scandal that happened. Um, you saw that with Chris Pincher, uh, allegations of sexual harassment towards um, uh, towards people. Um, but um, that. What really matters with this decision is whether Sunak is showing the people that he is holding um, this this behaviour to account, that he is tackling it, he's stamping it out. He promised to return integrity to government when he stood on the steps of Downing Street just a few months ago, or whether that is let slide for the sake of loyalty and allyship. Ellen, I think also important for Dominic Raab's future is how many allies he have does he have a a big following in the party how how popular is he because that's also going to weigh into Sunak's decision yeah I mean I definitely think his public popularity has, has slipped he definitely ruffled feathers over the um over the leadership campaign I remember this interview he did standing next to Kwasi Kwarteng who was supporting this trust and they almost got into a verbal like argument um live on air um, he was um, outspoken about this trust's um, government and leadership, which meant that he does have a certain part of the party who dislikes him. Um, but uh, I wouldn't say he was universally popular in the party, but it's quite hard to um, it's quite hard to gauge that. Okay, Ellen Milligan, our Bloomberg UK politics reporter. Thanks very much for taking the time in Dublin to talk to us. It sounds incredibly busy there. I think you're all waiting for the tea shook, says our producer, James Wilcock. Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, it's, it's indicative, I suppose, of the interest there has been in parts of this event that we've been having so many people around us uh, this morning where we are broadcasting from the Bloomberg New Economy uh, Gateway Europe event. We've had lots of fascinating conversations here in Dublin, and I wanted to bring you one that I think really sums up the mood music here. I've been speaking to Kim Darrick, widely regarded uh, as one of the UK's diplomatic grandees. He was the UK's ambassador to the United States until 2019, and previously a national security advisor and UK permanent representative to the EU. I began by asking him if the unified front across Europe, uh, as well as from the UK in support of Ukraine, might provide a roadmap for future cooperation in the region. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We've had three prime ministers in the UK since the uh, Ukraine war started last February. 
Um, so in terms of British politics, it has been as turbulent a period as I can ever remember. But the one constant factor through that time, through those three prime ministers, has been a strong national position on Ukraine. We are the biggest European supplier of ammunition and weaponry to the Ukrainian forces and uh, prominent supporters of, uh, of the NATO position on, on Ukraine. Um, and we're working closely both with Europe um, and with the United States on how we go in future. Now, we're no longer around the EU table, so that's one area where we can't influence discussion in the way we might have done 10 years ago. But as I say, we're still second biggest contributors to NATO, second biggest contributors to the Ukraine military. Um, and I think that post-Brexit, what has happened because of the Ukraine war is we started to rebuild our defense and security policy channels with the EU. So that's been a very good thing. And it started to bring the uh, UK and the EU close together after a difficult period uh, straight after Brexit. Um, and I welcome that. Well, th yeah, I mean, that's an interesting question is, is NATO now a forum where the UK can rebuild those relationships that perhaps have been tarnished over the past few years with its European neighbours? It can, uh, and uh, we're very much on track with the main players in, in NATO. And I know from my continuing contacts with my old diplomatic uh, friends that there is a lot of traffic going on between between London and Paris and Berlin and Rome about, uh, about the Ukraine war. I think also the improved atmospherics, which of course are partly also down to the different style and approach of Prime Minister Sunak, have helped to deliver the Windsor framework and the breakthrough therefore on, uh, uh, on Brexit and on, uh, on the situation in, in Northern Ireland. So um, Ukraine war is a terrible thing. Millions of people are dying. Several millions uh, have been uh, displaced uh, as refugees. Um, but uh, it has actually encouraged us to rebuild those relationships with Europe. I'm interested to in you mentioned the Windsor framework. Of course, we had uh, have had events over the past two weeks commemorating 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement uh, in Northern Ireland. We saw Joe Biden go to Northern Ireland and meet the Prime Minister there as well. Is this a moment of change in UK-US relations as well? Is this going to be a turning point uh, in where that relationship goes from here? Well, foundations, as I know from a time in Washington, foundations of the UK-US relationship are always there, and it's the defence and security links which are as solid as difficult in difficult times of relationship as they are when, uh, when things at political level are very, very close. Um, there's a huge amount of cultural interaction. And of course, the United States is by some way our biggest export market. So it's not all about the relationship at the top between the Prime Minister and the President. Um, but there is no doubt that um, at the moment, that relationship is, is very good between Prime Minister Sunak and, and Joe Biden. Um, uh, they've seen quite a lot of each other mm. um, in, uh, you know, in recent months. Um, and, uh, and I think they see things internationally and in terms now of, of Northern Ireland in a very similar way. So that's a good positive for us. Um, 
do you think that could translate into something more concrete like a trade deal you know it's it's been very much downplayed the prospects yeah. uh, up until now of course we know it's a great hope uh, yeah. of the of the current government uh, to get one what yeah. do you think um, I don't think that uh, my assessment is these things can change they can change overnight if you suddenly get an announcement of Washington is that the Biden administration are not very interested in uh, free trade deals, um, uh, at least in this first term. It might change after 24 if President Biden wins a second term, but I don't think they're really, they're really. Uh, that is, I don't expect it to change over the next uh, over the next 18 months. I'm afraid it'd be nice if it did. Um, are the regional the trade, trade deals, deals that are being done with individual states of significance? Um, they are a compensation of sorts for not being able to get um, a, uh, a proper free trade deal between the US and the UK. But even a proper free trade deal between the US and the UK doesn't contribute massively to our GDP, certainly not as important as improving uh, the free trade deal that's been negotiated between the UK and the European Union, given that we still send 40% of our exports to, uh, to Europe. So all of these things have a role, and it's better to have them not to have them, but you shouldn't overemphasise their importance. So that was Kim Darragh, the former UK permanent representative to the EU, among many other jobs he's held during his long diplomatic career, now a member of the House of Lords, of course, as well. Well, here at the Bloomberg New Economy Gateway Europe event in County Wicklow in Ireland, we also have a European correspondent, Maria Tadeo, on loan from Brussels for the occasion. Uh, Maria, great to, great to have you with us. Look. This is obviously our UK politics show where we talk about British politics, but this is an event that's been looking much more broadly at the situation in Europe. What have you picked up in terms of perceptions of the UK when you've been here? First of all, I have to say I love it here. I love the Irish people. I this didn't has pay been... you to say that. No, I did not. I just I just <laughs> love it. It immediately, like to me at least, it puts me in this very happy mood. Like it's 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 I just love it here. Uh, I wish we could make this more regularly, but also longer. I mean it just feels like we've been here for it's two just hours. Like that we just move here. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That, that would be great. I would be up for it. The nature is wild here, too. I love it. It's, I also love that we're doing this full like Irish debrief on the UK politics uh, yes. podcast. Please let That's That's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, going back to, to the point uh, that you asked, for me, it's, it's a very good question because I must say I've seen a huge change in the way that this relationship uh, between the EU and obviously I was going to say European countries, but the UK mm-hmm. is still very much a European country. Indeed. And, and the UK politically in the past, probably ever since Rishi Sunak uh, took over the job at number 10. There has been a real change in dynamics. I perceive this, I'm normally based in Brussels. This is something I really have seen. It became obvious to me at the Munich Security Conference when I spoke uh, to the Prime Minister. A lot of people that I spoke behind the scenes kind of said, you know, he, he, you, you, you can talk to him. That's, that's what's changed. And I think here, it was also the same at the IMF uh, with Jeremy Hunt, you can definitely see there's a change in dynamics for the better. Is that going to translate into perennial good relationships, no tension between the two sides? I'm not sure, but the change in tone is, is significant. And it's something when Pascal Donoghue, the Eurogroup president, so a man who has a hat as both the Irish Public Expenditure Minister and the president of the group of Eurozone finance ministers, spoke here at this event yesterday. He also noted that change in tone around the UK as being a big theme at the IMF meetings, which, Maria, helpfully, you were also at. <laughs> <laughs> Do you agree with Pascal Donoghue? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and you know, I, I think to me also the fact that it's coming from the Irish is key because 
And you know this very well. This is the one relationship that really matters within the EU. Uh, every member of the European Union, given obviously the history between the Republic of Ireland and the rest of the UK, the geography of it, they always say the Irish have to feel happy in whatever comes uh, next and they have to feel comfortable if it doesn't work for the Irish, uh, even if it doesn't have repercussions for the rest of the European countries or maybe continental and don't see it on a daily basis, it's not going to work for the EU. The fact that he says it, it almost gives a seal of approval, I think again speaks to this change in dynamics. And I remember when I spoke to him at the IMF, he really said, I have very, very good impressions of Rishi Sunak, I have good impressions of Jeremy Hunt, and the working relationship is working, which again, you could go, well, duh, that's the whole point of bilateral relationships, but we know that for a long time it, it was completely broken. Yeah. I mean, at, and you remember this, at times meetings between the EU and the UK that would not end up with a communique, a statement, because they weren't even able to agree on a single line. Mm. So uh, this is very significant what's happening in my view. And an interesting player that, that has actually just breathed pious here yeah. at, the, at the event is the Theta Cleo Varadkar. Of course, he's taken back up that role after a period of being uh, the deputy leader of the Irish government. And his dynamic with Boris Johnson managed to break a deadlock in the Brexit negotiations. And again, we see the emergence of a duo, Varadkar and Sunak, who are also people who can do business. Yes, and again, it, it, I think to me it's fascinating because going back to what we talked before, uh, you could argue these are the two countries that perhaps could have the most tensions because they go through this on a daily basis. When we talked about the Windsor framework, obviously both said this goes beyond trade. It's also the diplomatic and also peaceful uh, process, which, by the way, Pascal Donahue also alluded to uh, yesterday in this dinner uh, and that we did here at the at the forum at Bloomberg. Like, this is we not didn't just, host it. We just attended. Yeah, we yeah. just attended. Exactly. Did I, mean, I, you were did I play star, it up? Clearly, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know, I, I think that's also very important, and this is why it's great that we're doing this, not in Dublin, but close to, and, and the airport is where we landed. I think that's the confusion for a lot of people here at, at this forum. But really, this is a relationship that needs to work, not just on a trade front, which is very significant, but also everything that it encompasses, which is huge. And you know the history, obviously, of the country very well, and, and, and it, it goes way beyond the economics. Maria, so there's clearly been a warming of, of UK-EU relations. What about European unity? Because in many ways, Brexit was a, a win, wasn't it, for Brussels in as far as a lot of countries got behind the project. There was a rise in the popularity of the EU as uh, everybody saw what a mess Brexit was. But there are problems now with Hungary and Poland and uh, Macron and Schultz. What's your take on, on, on EU unity? Look, what I would say on the EU and Brexit is I, I really, and again, it's not because I, I want to be the Brussels kind of uh, cheerleader here, but when you cover this on a daily basis, you realize that the changing narratives are, are flipping and they're shifting. And there was a time where Brexit dominated the entire continental press too. And there was this idea that it shows and it proves that you're better in than outside. And, and it was kind of this... Uh, constant also clash at times of, of views of, of what the EU means and, and, and meant with the UK in and out. I, I think that's completely changed now. The page has really turned. Uh, this Brexit conversation is very well and done and dusted for the Europeans and I think now the focus which goes back to the conversation that we just had is a normal working relationship. The Brexit, the lessons from Brexit, the fallout, all of this it has been very well digested by the European uh, public. It's about the future. Now when it comes to the EU27, look I think that this 
this is always the issue. There will always be tensions between the different countries that make up the EU. Uh, there's obviously, it's very difficult to run a union uh, that it's not a full federal union, to be fair, and, and that has different governments and different perspectives. But I think this is a narrative that will never change. Macron, Schultz, obviously Berlin and Paris, this needs to work for the entire European Union to function. It's a key relationship. I guess you could argue it was better before and now maybe gone cold because of the dynamics they both face. Mm. Emmanuel Macron with the pension reform and Schultz with his coalition politics. A lot of people criticize the fact that he's focused very much domestically on the German yeah. politics, not so much on the Europeans. As, as most leaders are. And, and when you exactly. think about it logically, I mean, we're talking about 27 sovereign countries. They all have their own local reasons as well. You have I to just, sell it back home, obviously. Yeah. I wanted to just pick up on one point um, that I heard here from business leaders, including Siobhan Talbot from the food group Glambia, talking about for businesses, Brexit is it's done. They, yeah. they made their adjustments. They've moved production lines if necessary. They've moved HR if necessary. This is something that businesses have uh, adapted to now. And for them, it's sorted and they just don't want things to get worse. And I think that's sort of the perception from the business side. Sorry, Lizzie, you had a question. Yeah, I just wanted to ask Maria, you know, this new, more favourable view of the Prime Minister, I wonder whether it's limited to Dear Rishi, as Ursula von der Leyen called him, <laughs> or do you think it extends to his party, to the UK as a whole, or do you think that actually the Labour government, a Labour government, if they came into power, would actually get a better reception from EU leaders? You know, Lizzie, that's a fantastic question, but if I have to be honest, I don't think that in the European Union, they even contemplate the different options, the election. They just work with what they have right now at the moment. And I think the perception that they have, this is better than it was in the past. You have a normal working relationship. You can speak to Rishi Sunak. Again, it speaks to your point, too. Is this about the man and the administration around him? Or is it fundamental changes in the UK? I hope, or they would hope, that this is fundamental. But I think at this point, this calculus of election, changing government, who comes next, uh, in a very volatile political landscape, too, in Europe. Remember, you have the European elections coming up in 2024. I think that they take it day by day, which already, you know, if you're able to take it day by day, that's that's not a bad bad thing, thing. I I would say. Uh, Maria, we love having you on the show. Thank You're you so much. You're welcome anytime. And the, you heard the pitch here first that we move Bloomberg UK politics to be based from Ireland. Yes. So, is that is that going to be acceptable? An, inter- an interesting take uh, <laughs> on that story. Maria Tadeo, uh, thank you very much. That's it from us at the Bloomberg New Economy Gateway Europe event in Paris, Quirk County, Wicklow. Not far from Dublin, but not in Dublin. Close to the airport. <laughs> And back to us sitting in our cupboard in London. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we've got time for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen. This episode was produced by Chris Pitts and our audio engineer was Marifal Hussain. I'm Ewan Potts. I'm Stephen Carroll. And I'm Lizzie Burden. We'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.